Amen. Let's go ahead and pray and begin our time in God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that you've given us in Christ. The hope that we've sung of this morning, that Jesus is alive and that he reigns. He is on the throne. And he will hold us fast. We look to the cross today for our hope to know that our sins are dealt with there in totality. And that nothing remains for us except to rest in your grace and experience your faithful love and mercy. God, we pray that you would strengthen our faith today. You would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. That you would sink the roots of our faith deeply into the truth of your word. Pray for the help of your spirit. Pray that you would give me wisdom, skillful words. I pray that your spirit would open our hearts to be receptive to your truth. Humble us today. Encourage us today. Focus us today on your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his glorious name. Amen. Amen. Please open your Bibles this morning to the second psalm. Over the last few weeks, there's been a fascinating microcosm of the human condition that has played out somewhat like a movie for us on our TV screens and phone screens, computer screens, as we've watched this group of protesters in Seattle set up something they called an autonomous zone. If you follow that at all, you know that they attempted to cast off the rule of law to defy the authorities who enforce that law, the local police department and declare their intentions to rule themselves, to create a miniature society according to their ideas of how things should be. And this past week, the powers that be decided their time was up and sort of cleared them out. So this little experiment is now over. But it's interesting to observe this and to seek to recognize what this tells us about the human race. As Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. And we've really been doing this since the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve latched on to the seductive suggestion of the serpent. That God's authority is restrictive. That God's authority can be cast off. And that they could choose instead to rule themselves. That they could know good and evil and be like God. But despite the serpent's assurance otherwise, there was a hook buried in the bait. That this, this reach for autonomy comes with cost. They would surely die. Adam made the fatal choice to rebel, and we've been doing the same thing ever since. The sin of the garden is now being carried out not just by individuals in the garden, not even just by one family, but it's now being expressed by humanity at large. This instinct to reject God's authority, to resist his rule, to To reject his sovereignty is basic to the human condition. It's the essence of sin. This spirit of sinful, rebellious man is captured so powerfully in William Henley's poem, Invictus. Invictus proudly declares of his unconquerable soul, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, 
I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But Psalm 2 exposes this for what it really is, revealing the spiritual insanity of rebellion against God and warning the kings of the earth, warning the peoples of the world that such rebellion will not end how they think. Let's read through God's word together this morning. Listen, this is the word of the Lord. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. According to Acts chapter 4, this psalm was written by King David. And in order to rightly interpret, rightly understand these words, once again we need to remember the covenants that frame the biblical story. Just like the Mosaic covenant with its promises of blessing and cursing formed the backdrop for Psalm 1, like we saw last year, or last week rather. It feels like a year this week, doesn't it? Uh, The Davidic covenant this week in Psalm 2 provides the background for this psalm. God promised David the throne. He promised him the kingdom. He promised him victory over his enemies and greatness and peace. And he said this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 12. God says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It is this promise by God, these divine words that guaranteed David's line would be preserved and that his descendants would retain the rights to the throne of Israel. Psalm 2 grabs onto this promise and forms it into a song, a coronation hymn. Fit to, be stung, fit to be sung at the installation of Israel's kings down throughout the ages. It's a celebration of God's promise. It's a statement of confidence in his power and his purpose, that God's purposes would prevail. 
So it's a royal psalm. But this promise would be fulfilled ultimately in the eventual descendant of David, Jesus Christ, the one who would reign forever. And so the New Testament authors latch onto this psalm. They quote it often, frequently, to show that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that he will reign forever. So in its fullest sense, in its final sense, this psalm is about Jesus. And like Psalm 1, it's not necessarily a song of praise. It's not directed to God. It's a psalm of instruction. It speaks to us. While Psalm 1, as we saw last time, speaks to individuals and calls us to the way of wisdom, Psalm 2 speaks to rulers. It speaks to nations and to the peoples of the earth. And it calls for submission. Psalm 1 speaks to the mind and to the heart, calling for wisdom and delight in the law of the Lord. But Psalm 2 speaks directly to the will, calling us to choose to bow our knee to Christ. And while Psalm 1 sort of extends an invitation, Psalm 2 lays down an ultimatum. You must submit to the authority of the Lord's Christ. Bow before the Son of God. This lesson is driven home in four stanzas that paint for us a portrait of the human condition. That's verses 1 through 3. And then shows us the reality of God's power, verses 4 through 6. Then shows us the scope of God's plan. That's verses 7 through 9. And then finally calls us to respond in humble worship. Verses 10 through 12. So I'd like to look at these four stanzas together today. In verses 1 through 3, we find the rebellion of the nations. In essence, the peoples of the earth declare, here is what we are going to do. The nations, verse 1, rage. And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This psalm opens with a rhetorical question. Why? Why are they doing this? And this question exposes the moral condition of sinful man. Their emotional state is one of rage. The nations here are described as angry and as rebellious. And is proud. And this emotional state leads them to action. They are plotting. They are scheming. They're planning a revolt. It's interesting here, the word for plotting is the same word that's translated meditating in Psalm 1, which forms an amazing contrast. While the righteous man ponders God's will, seeking to understand it and obey it, the rebellious nations ponder how to rebel against it. While the righteous man delights in God's authoritative word, the wicked rulers of the earth hate God's authoritative word. They rage against the authority of God. And the psalmist shows us this isn't just some momentary bad attitude. It is a settled resolve. It is entrenched. There is a deep level of commitment. It says in verse 2, they set themselves. They've dug in their heels, planted their flag. And it's not just an individual problem. The psalm shows us this is a large-scale conspiracy. They take counsel together, it says in verse 2. There's cooperation, coordination. It's not just a knee-jerk reaction. This is a coordinated revolution against the Lord. And notice, not just against God, but also against his anointed. Against his anointed there at the end of verse 2. What does this mean? Who is the Lord's anointed? 
In Old Testament Israel, we have to understand that there was this ritual of anointing, pouring oil over someone's head, and it was, it was a ritual that set them apart to fulfill a special function. It marked them to say, this one has been chosen by God and appointed by God to fulfill a purpose, whether it is being a prophet or a priest or a king, to give instruction or to order worship or to exercise authority. These were the offices that God gave his people. And they were anointed to signify that they were set apart to that office, ordained by God as his servants, as his representatives. The Hebrew word that's translated anointed here is Mashiach, it's Messiah, Messiah. In this context, the Messiah King is the one established by God, who therefore represents God's plan and God's authority and God's moral law. So they rebel against God and against his anointed. And notice what they say in verse 3. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The bonds and the cords here refer to God's moral authority. These people want none of it. We see this all around us today. People hate God's law. They see God's design for the family, for instance, or for the church, or for society. They see it as oppressive, as restrictive. His moral law threatens human autonomy. The spirit of our age is to declare, I will be who I say I am. I will live how I want to live, and I will do what I want to do. And if God seeks to restrain that, he is oppressive and to be resisted. Jesus described it this way in John 3, verse 19. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Or in the words of Psalm 2, they rage. The king's plot and scheme. And the psalmist asks why? Why are they doing this? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And it's not that the psalmist doesn't understand their goals. No, he understands exactly what they're trying to do. The reason he asks this question is because he is amazed by their foolishness. He knows that this is a futile endeavor. They plot, he says, in vain. In vain. Rage towards God, rebellion against God, is spiritual insanity. These people may be powerful. They are rulers and kings and nations. But verse 2 says they are only kings, look what it says, on the earth. They are only kings of the earth. And the one against whom they rage, according to the very next verse, is enthroned, not on the earth, but in the heavens. The rebellion of the nations in verses 1 through 3 is now met with the resolve of God. Verses 4 through 6. The nations say, here's what we are doing. Here's what we are going to do. And then God answers and says, here's what I am going to do. We see the reality of God's power on display. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
We live in a rebellious world where people hate God, they hate his law, and they hate anything and anyone who would remind them that they're accountable to God and his law. And this often troubles us, doesn't it? It grieves us, it concerns us, can even cause fear. But it doesn't trouble God. Not at all. Because he sits enthroned in the heavens. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. The 11th Psalm in verse 4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. God sees exactly what's going on. He is in the heavens ruling over all, and he's not wringing his hands. God never gets nervous. He is never afraid. He's never uncertain. He is never surprised. He has never been confused for a millisecond of eternity. He is on his heavenly throne. The imagery of sitting on a throne here symbolizes power and authority. And God has all of it. To be seated in the heavens means he has power and authority over everything that is on the earth. And when God sees their rage, when he sees their plotting, he laughs them to scorn. He holds them in contempt. This is not the laughter of joy. It's not that he thinks it's funny. This is the laughter of mockery. To say, you are being so, so foolish. That's how God feels about it. Now, what is God going to do about it? We see this in verse 5. He will speak. He will speak. The most amazing and encouraging truth, and simultaneously the most sobering and fearful truth, is that God is a God who speaks. And when he speaks, his words have impact. God speaks in creation. He says, let there be, and there is. God speaks in salvation. He calls us by name. He announces his good news in the gospel. He declares us righteous by grace through faith in the work of Christ. But God also speaks in judgment. And here the divine word is the expression of his divine wrath. He says he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me. I have set up my king on Zion, my holy hill. While his word is a delight to the righteous, in Psalm 1, it strikes terror in the heart of the rebellious because it announces God's intention. The nations say, here's what we're going to do. Let us cast off their bonds and break these shackles. And God says, here's what I am going to do. As for me, as for me, Here is my plan, and his plan will ultimately frustrate and thwart their schemes. He says he will set his king on Zion, his holy hill. Zion is descriptive of Jerusalem. It's the city of David. It's the place where Israel's throne was, the place from which the Davidic king would reign. So it represents authority and rule. But it is also the place where the Temple Mount was. Zion referred specifically and narrowly to the place where God's presence was manifested there, the place where they drew near to worship and make sacrifices. It was a place set apart as holy to God. So when God announces to all the, all the earth that he will set his king on Zion, he is announcing that no revolt will ever triumph over the authority of God and nothing can ever eradicate the worship of God. They may plan to cast off God's rule, 
But God's plan is to crush their rebellion specifically by installing his king. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is who the anointed is. This is the Messiah. While David and his sons are described in this psalm to some degree, and they enjoyed a measure of success over their neighboring enemies, there is something bigger that's going on here than simply Solomon and and some of the other kings who came through David. As we read through the story of Scripture, we discover a growing, increasing portrait of this anointed one, God's king. He is the snake crusher, the seed of the woman promised in Genesis chapter 3. He is the prophet who is greater than Moses that we read of in Deuteronomy 18. The one who does not just write the word of God, but the one who is the word of God. Not the one who simply records the law of God, but the one who fulfills the law of God. Jesus is the great son of David, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Isaiah says of him in Isaiah 9, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When sinful men say, I'm going to do this, they will fail. When God says, I'm going to do something, it will happen. He will do this. He will establish his king in Zion. Daniel 7 describes this king. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is God's plan. This is his intention. And as you read the pages of scripture, it comes into clearer and clearer focus that this is Jesus. God's plan is to establish his son, Jesus, as the Christ, as the eternal king who will reign over all. And this saying of God, this word that reveals his plan to the rebellious nations, strikes terror into the hearts of the wicked because it exposes the futility of their plots and their schemes. And it spells judgment on their rage and on their rebellion. The nations rage. They say, this is what we are going to do. And then God laughs and says, no, this is what I am going to do. This is the response of God to their rebellion. The rebellion of man, the resolve of God. And then verses 7 through 9 describe for us the reign of this king. The reign of this king. And this tells us even more of the scope of God's plan. The speaker switches here now to the anointed one to the king himself, and he speaks. He says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord, Yahweh, the I am, the great God of the covenant, said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
the perspective shifts here. We've heard what the nations are saying. We have heard now what God says, and now the king speaks. And he rehearses God's covenant promise, this decree. And this decree underscores several things for us. First of all, it shows us the status of the anointed one, that he is the son of God. The Lord said to me, you are my son, verse 7. Today I have begotten you. This is a term of relationship, to be the son of God. On the day of coronation, the Davidic kings entered into a special relationship with God. Remember what the promise had said in 2 Samuel. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me as a son. So the kings were to relate to God as their father, to do his will. And he would relate to them as sons, authorizing their rule, protecting them, providing for them, and blessing them with an inheritance. So again, this is fulfilled in some sense with all the kings who came through David. But Jesus fulfills this in the ultimate sense. Because Jesus is the Son of God, not by adoption. Like the Davidic kings, Jesus is the Son of God by birth. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. Jesus did not become God's son, but he has eternally been the second person of the Godhead. Jesus is the begotten, not meaning that he had a beginning. John tells us in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. No, when the psalmist says, today I have begotten you, here rehearsing the words of the king, this refers to his eternal relationship to the father as son. This is part of the divine mystery and glory of the Trinity. The God we worship is three in one. And Jesus, as we see in the New Testament, was declared to be the Son of God at his baptism. The voice thundered from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And again at the transfiguration, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. He's proven to be the Son of God by his resurrection. Paul writes in Romans 1.3 of this Son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why Hebrews speaks of Jesus with the language of Psalm 2. Hebrews 1 verse 2 says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed to be the heir of all things. In verse 3, after making purification for sins, the author of Hebrews writes, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's enthronement language, coronation language. In Hebrews 1.5, it says, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The testimony of the New Testament is clear that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the fulfillment of this psalm. Jesus alone, for all eternity, enjoys the unique status that is described in Psalm 2 of being the Son of God. In Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul preaches, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is the identity of the Lord's anointed. But this declaration that the king rehearses also shows us the destiny of the anointed. His destiny is to judge the earth 
and to possess the earth. Verse 8 says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In the 24th Psalm, it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And because it all belongs to God, He has every right to give it to His Son. To give it to Jesus as an eternal inheritance. And the Son can ask. The Son can ask of Him. He can ask for His inheritance because it has been promised to Him. It is His by rights. And this fulfills God's original purpose for His creation. As Adam was to rule over the earth. As David was promised a kingdom. So the Son of God will reign here over this creation. It is his as an inheritance. It all belongs to Christ. And he will not only possess it, but he will purify it through judgment. It says he will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This shows that he will rule in power. That he will judge his enemies with ease. And he will utterly destroy them beyond repair. This day is coming. And it's described for us in Revelation 19. John writes, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one who is sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord. Jesus will come, and he will judge, and he will crush his enemies. Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, at the coming of Christ after the resurrection, it says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, to the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, the Son, so that God may be all in all. That's how the story ends. Christ rules, Christ conquers, Christ reigns, and then he offers it all to the Father, who will be all in all. From him, through him, to him, all things. That's how the story ends. This is God's plan. This is the destiny of the Messiah. It's the establishment of a kingdom, the judgment of the nations, and the possession of this eternal inheritance. We've seen what the nations want to do. What God says he will do and hear how he will do it through his anointed king. 
then finally comes the conclusion, verses 10 through 13, and a response is urged. We are urged to respond. Here's what the nations do. Here's what God is going to do and how he's going to do it. Now here's the question, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The conclusion of this psalm gives both an invitation and a warning. The rebellious rulers are called to be wise. As the prophet of our day in the 70s, Jim Croce, said, you don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wind, you don't pull the mask off the Lone Ranger, you don't mess around with Jim, right? That's our our modern wisdom. But the psalmist speaks to the nations and says, be wise, be warned, you better think about what you're doing. Don't rebel against the Lord's anointed because there are grave consequences for those who revolt against God. Instead, we are called to serve the Lord with fear. This means that we are to worship him. This word for service is very closely related to the word for worship. To rejoice with trembling means they must exchange their rage-filled applauding for reverent praise. To kiss the sun is a demonstration of humility. Conquered kings would bow before the the victorious invaders and give them a kiss of homage, declaring their loyalty and submission to the conqueror. While men still live, there is still an opportunity to repent, to choose submission over stubbornness, to choose worship instead of warfare. When the day of judgment comes, however, there will be no escape. As the psalmist says, his wrath is quickly kindled. You have a chance right now, but when he comes, it will be too late. There will be nothing in that day to stop his wrath. But now, in God's mercy, there is still time to repent. And against the backdrop of all of this authority and power and judgment and wrath, we see this amazing offer of grace. This psalm hits hard. It is direct. It is confrontational. But notice the final line. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Christ is the one who shatters the nations. But he is also one who comes to save. And there is a tender promise of grace for all who will bow the knee to the Messiah. Blessing for those who take refuge. I can't say it any better than Derek Kidner who writes, you cannot find refuge from him, only in him. It is in the cross of Christ that we find our only escape from the wrath to come. The Son of God does come to rule, but he also promises to save those who will turn from their sin, those who will repent of their rebellion against God and bow the knee Trusting in him, crying out for his mercy. He is faithful to save. In closing, I just want to give you a couple takeaways from this psalm for us. Four of them. First of all, this psalm gives us a needed perspective, doesn't it? 
We need this perspective. We need to be reminded of these truths. It helps us not to fret. Because when the nations rage and the people's plot, often the faithful tend to fret and to fear or to become angry ourselves, to try to take matters into our hands. But this psalm gives us needed perspective. We can rest in the confidence of Christ's coming and his ultimate victory. This psalm also moves us to pray. We ought to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And that's not a vague prayer. That is a highly specific prayer. We are praying, Jesus, come quickly. Jesus, crush your enemies. Jesus, rescue your saints. Jesus, establish your righteous reign here. We ought to pray that prayer, shaped by this text. It ought to move us to pray, God, help us to endure. Because as the nations rage and plot in vain, they will take out their anger and their rage on any who represent Christ. That's you and me. So we ought to pray for grace to endure. And we ought to pray for God to save sinners. We see this promise of grace that blessed are all who take refuge in him. And say, oh God, call sinners to yourself. Redeem those who now walk as your enemies. Transform them to walk as children of light. Take people like the Apostle Paul who once persecuted the church and transform them into loudspeakers for the good news of the gospel. We ought to pray those kinds of prayers. This psalm moves us to pray. But thirdly, this psalm also equips us to preach, doesn't it? Now, I'm not talking about just preaching on Sunday. I'm talking about your proclamation of the supremacy of Christ to a world that rages against him. We go to the world with a message of warning but also with an invitation to come and experience God's mercy. Friends, there are many people out there who don't know. They don't know how this story ends. They don't know who the Lord's Messiah is. They don't know God's plan, but we do. And God has entrusted to us the message. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are to warn and we are to urge. We're to go and preach the good news. It is our privilege to tell the world of Christ and his glory and his grace. And I must do this now that there may be some of you here today who need to hear that message of who Jesus is and what he has done in his death, burial, and resurrection and what he will do when he returns to judge the wicked, to establish his kingdom. This psalm speaks to you directly today. Be wise and be warned. Embrace a posture of worship towards Christ. Repent of your sin. Turn your heart towards the Lord. This is the only way to escape the wrath to come. And it is a, it is a great blessing to know him and to be known by him. And then finally, this psalm gives us a great reason for praise. We are to worship the Lord because of his glory as displayed in this text. We should marvel at the Father's plan. We should stand in awe at the Son's glory. We should thank God for the magnitude of his mercy towards us. Because the only reason that you and I aren't protesting the moral will of God and revolting against his authority and raging against Jesus Christ is because God chose to love you and me and soften our hearts and draw us to himself. We ought to be deeply humbled and grateful for what God has done towards us. Praise God because we have found refuge in Christ from the wrath that is to come. And praise God that we have a refuge in him from the wrath of the world. 
no matter what they do to us or what they say, there's nothing that can take away our union with Christ. This psalm gives us a reason for praise. These first two psalms really complement one another beautifully. Choose wisdom and delight in the law of the word, uh, the law of the Lord, and submit to his chosen king. It is only then that we can embark on a life of worship, the life that the rest of Psalms lays out for us. I hope these two weeks in the Psalms will shape your perspective, that it will renew your desire to seek the Lord, to trust him, to fear him above all else. The Lord is on his throne. He is in the heavens. And his plan will be fulfilled. May we respond with humble faith and worship to this truth. God, the world around us smolders with rage. And they plot in vain to cast off your authority. And Lord, we know that that's where we used to be as well. That's who we once were. It's hardwired into our flesh. We still deal with the remnants of that sinful rebellion every day. Even a silly thing like masks shows us how easy it is for us to hate being told what to do. God, I pray that you would lift our eyes from the circumstances around us, from our own desire for autonomy, that you would fix our gaze on Christ, the one who reigns supreme. You have anointed him and established him as your Messiah. We know that he will return, and when he does, it will spell doom for his enemies, but it will mean rest and glory and joy for those who find refuge in Christ. Lord, thank you for your offer of mercy, because we all deserve to be smashed with a rod of iron. We all deserve to be dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel, but instead, you have chosen to put us back together to renew in us your image, to conform us to the image of Christ, to make us new creatures, and to use us as clay vessels to display the glory of your gospel in this world. Lord, we worship you and praise you and give you glory for your amazing and marvelous sovereign grace towards us. Lord, we pray that you would save more, that you would preserve us, give us faith to endure, and joy in the midst of chaos. We praise you and give you much glory. In Jesus' name.